Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the all-time greats, and by any right, a future rock and roll Hall of Famer. Not that that's the ultimate laurel around here, but someone that definitely deserves it. Today on the show, the legend, Jane Weedlin of the band The Go-Go's of Frosted, of her own solo stuff, of the movie Clue, of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. She's just, she's a star, a star. And she's here to talk about punk. That's why I love doing this thing. That is why I love doing this thing. Anyway, but first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do for this podcast each and every week. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support it is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that you enjoy this podcast here each and every time we do one, and which is quite a bit these days. Like I think we're, we're fairly consistent about two a week. Got a couple of three episode weeks coming up, but uh, you know, we got a lot. We got a lot coming out here. So let everyone know about them. You can also support the show by uh, subscribing to it and rating it on the platform that you listen to it on. Thank you to everyone that does do that. I appreciate it very much. You can also head over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and a huge, huge thank you to the people that do that because uh, that really helps us keep the show going. And, and you know, when the computer breaks down, which happens quite a bit, uh, I can get it repaired and all that kind of stuff. So thank you, everyone at Patreon for supporting the podcast and speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind support of Vans who have really uh, helped me keep this thing going. Uh, I don't want to get to the point where I've got like, you know, live reads and ads and, and all that kind of stuff that you, you know, a lot of podcasts have. So uh, yeah, they help me kind of, you know, prevent that from happening and, and pay for all the stuff that comes up to, you know, web hosting and all that kind of stuff. So thank you to Vans for supporting this thing. And uh, yeah, and, and I appreciate it. I love doing this thing. I love it. Every time I sit down to record an episode, I learn. Like, for example, today I learned a lot from Jane. Jane is someone I've wanted to talk to for years about punk rock. Now, she is a, as I said off the top, a legend, a bona fide music legend for her accomplishments in the Go-Go's. I say it right to her. I think she is one of the most underrated power pop songwriters ever. Uh, her solo stuff is incredible too. Like some of it obviously is, is, uh, very much, um, 
I guess marred for lack of a better term by eighties production, but her songs are all there. And then later on she did frosted in the nineties, which, uh, yeah, once again, I think shows the songwriting chops. Like how could you listen to the song? Our lips are sealed and not think that's written by one of the great songwriters in rock and roll history, because it is because <laughs> that song's incredible anyway. So this is someone, uh, you know, I've, I've wanted to have on the show because I knew that in addition to all this sort of stuff, she also goes way back and punk rock is foundational for not just her, but the entire band, the go-go's as well. So, uh, yeah, uh, this is, uh, this is a, a fun conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. The go-go's got a lot of stuff. The go-go's have been very busy as of late. And in addition to, uh, the brand new re-release of God bless the go-go's on vinyl for the first time, it's got a, there's also CD and it's got bonus tracks and all sorts of great stuff on that. So in addition to that, they've also got a brand new single called club zero, which has a new video with it. And to top it off, there's a new documentary that you can check out right now. It's available uh, on digital services for rental and purchase right now. And uh, yeah, check that out. You know, the Go-Go's. Like, uh, really, a band that is beloved by everyone and yet somehow still super underrated, you know, especially as a punk band. Like, there's there's these early Go-Go's demos that are released on reissues and things over the years. We talk about a few of them in this interview. You're going to hear all this stuff again, but those demos really are worth searching out because they kind of, uh, are a lot kind of closer to sort of the punk stuff that they were coming, coming out of and where the Go-Go's would ultimately go in this sort of pure pop, perfect pop direction. Oh, I love the Go-Go's. Anyway, I could wax forever about this subject, but that's what footnotes is for over there on Patreon with uh, my buddy, Chris O'Toole. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's it. Check out all that go-go stuff, which is out there right now. Uh, I, Jane, I, I had a half hour and we, we stretched it out here. So you're going to, you know, it, it was like a lightning round. I, I just, I'm just throwing questions as fast as I can come up with them, uh, at her to, cause I, as I say, I've been waiting to do this for a long time. Uh, if you're a fan of LA punk and LA punk rock history, also head over to floodmagazine.com and check out some of the videos that I did over there for that punk as fuck punk AF show where we talk, we go to the mask. We talk about, uh, you know, the, the venue that, uh, Jane and I talk about on this thing too. Anyway, check out those videos. I'm not going to yammer on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the legend Jane Wheedlin on turned out a punk. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you are a, a dream guest for this thing. <laughs> well, I think um, possibly because nobody probably knows I was a punk or am a punk. <laughs> so it's a big surprise thing. Well, I don't think you give yourself enough credit on that one. I've been reading you in various punk history books for years, talk about the punk connection, but also not only just for the punk thing, but in addition to the Go-Go's, I think your solo stuff and the stuff you did with Frosted is amazing. I think you're such an underrated, like you're one of the greatest power pop songwriters of all time. Wow. That's really nice. But you know what I'm especially happy about is that um, that you heard the Frosted album and liked it because, uh, you know, that one, boy, talk about nobody hearing it. I think that album sold 2,000 copies and just sank into oblivion. But I love that album. I'm so uh, critical of my work, and that's one of the albums I actually still love. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You created a collector's item because it actually goes for a pretty penny now. Oh, really? 
Yeah, it's a rare record. So, you know, and, and I think it's one of those records that unfortunately, because of, you know, this sort of incredible history you have just kind of got overlooked because as you're saying, it's a fantastic record. And I think really kind of harkens back to kind of those early go-go demos even. Yeah. Well, I, um, my favorite music is nineties music. So I was like super influenced by what was going on in the, in the nineties and just super turned on to the, the, the sounds and stuff. And also there were so many women making music that I got really inspired. So I think it's definitely one of my most inspired records. Well, we're going to get to there, hopefully. I probably not, because this thing moves at a snail's pace and we're barely even getting started. But I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Jane, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yes, I did. I was um, I was in a trade technical college studying to become a fashion designer. And it, it really was a trade tech. It was called trade tech. And um, they concentrated on all the just technical aspects of the fashion industry. So I learned how to um, sketch, how to make patterns, how to grade, which is changing pattern sizes, um, uh, all the intricacies of sewing. And so um, anyways, I was very immersed in that. I loved fashion and clothes. And one day I was reading the fashion newspaper, Women's Wear Daily, and they had all these big color photos of the punk rock scene in um, London. So this was 1976 that this happened. And I was so excited because I had been really heavily in the glam scene in um, high school. And then it kind of fizzled out a little bit. Um, so that the punk rock scene was sort of a natural evolution for me. And as it turns out, you know, millions of other kids did the same thing. Um, I loved the look. When I got to hear the music, I loved the energy and the rawness and, and the anger, and it just really suited me and where I was at. So um, pretty much right away, I started just making punk rock clothes. And there was a store on Sunset Boulevard called Granny Takes a Trip that had started out as a glitter rock fashion, uh, clothes store and had become a punk rock clothes store. So I went to them with some of my stuff I'd made and they bought it. And while I was in there, um, I met a girl who was also trying to sell stuff, Pleasant Gaiman. And she told me that there was a punk rock scene in Hollywood. And I just had no idea. And that was pretty much the best thing ever. So she gave me a flyer for the mask, which was kind of ground zero for punk rock in Hollywood. And I started going and it pretty much immediately became my, my whole world. Like, you know, it was just everything to me. One thing that you brought up there um, and that I'm, I'm obsessed with is that kind of pre-punk L.A. glam rock scene. And I read in that <laughs> in, in the John Doe book, you wrote an essay about going to Rodney's English disco. And I'm just kind of wondering what were your impressions of, of that kind of scene? Because it seems to me like that's a natural precursor to, to the punk stuff that comes a few years later. Absolutely, because at the time when that came out, it was at least as outrageous as punk rock. I mean, parents were horrified, you know, boys were dressing like girls and girls were dressing scantily and every it was like, you know, like really free love, free sexuality. And I mean, the society was basically appalled by it. And, you know, I, of course, loved it. <laughs> um, Rodney's. Rodney's was a weird little place. I mean, it was tiny. You can't think of it like as a disco. I mean, 
if there was a hundred people in there, the, the fire marshal probably would have come. Um, but it was cool because you, you could get in and be underage because they supposedly had food there, although I never saw any food there. Um, so, you know, ostensibly it was a restaurant bar um, and there were always, always bands there. So like you would get to sort of like rub shoulders with up and coming bands. And I mean, I never saw David Bowie there, but I've seen photos of him there. So that's like, I don't know, kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, yeah, like some of the bands that were playing there, like like Zolar X, to me, that's like the first, like that's like all this talk about punk rock starting in New York or London. Like to me, Zolar X is doing that before it's labeled punk rock. Yeah, Zolar X were so weird and kind of scary. And um, I got to see them play. I got to see them at the club. Um, there was this guy, Joe Bryant, that was also kind of like this space creature that was, you know, totally like poor man's Bowie. But um he was around and then Iggy Pop was around then and he was just like a big mess, mm. really huge mess. And who else? Oh, Silverhead. I don't know if anyone remembers them. But Michael DeBar is a, is a pretty uh, well-known DJ these days for Sirius. What were Silverhead um, like? What, what, what kind of music were they doing? Um, You know, they... Um, I don't know. It was like they had the song 16 and Savage. (laughs) It was just kind of, I would say it was rockier than some of the other stuff you were hearing. And it it was good. Um, They were, and then, you know, the New York Dolls, they were there. I saw them play. I mean, people didn't actually play at the club. Sorry, I didn't mean to make it sound like that. But there were sometimes weird events in Hollywood where you could go and see glam rock bands and then of course at like the Santa Monica Civic you would get the more bands that were starting to break through so like Mott the Hoople was there um who else anyway so yeah that was like a super super fun cool time and so when the punk thing started it kind of felt like that a little bit but even more so because I was 18 and I was able to move out of my parents house and and into the Canterbury apartment building which is where all the punks lived so you know the go-go's have that song living at the Canterbury it's like being in a dormitory (laughs) (laughs) did you ever record that song um I actually think it's on um our compilation album return to the valley of the go-go's oh wow okay yeah I think it is. I mean, I think it's just a live recording now. It's it's this recording's a big mess. Mm. And like we've been talking for years about trying to record some of our original material and how fun it would be, but I don't know. So far it's we haven't gotten around to it. Maybe when we're in our 70s or 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that stuff's fantastic. Like like uh Lust of Love and Blades kind of really do kind of pre-foretell you know, that adolescence OC sound, like the stuff you're doing, like, it's just, I don't know, those songs are awesome. Yeah. And the funny thing is that song Blades was about me being a cutter and, and then cutting, I don't, I hate to say it like a trend, but (laughs) cutting Mm. didn't really become a trend till way later. So Mm. I was absolutely a a cutting, a cutting pioneer. (laughs) Not that I recommend people cut themselves. I do not. No, no. Um, but, you know, I think that's like, you know, that goes to what I've always heard is that early on, 
you know, not that there wasn't always a subversive quality to what you're doing, but that there was this sort of like darker edge to the go-go sound. Is that, is that indicative of all those kind of early songs? Like, is it all kind of like, like really, you know, sort of darker subjects that you're talking about? Um, yeah, it was darker. I mean, the punk scene, it, uh, especially the beginning days, it was very creative and very inclusive, but it was dark. I mean, mm. yeah. So a lot of the songs are very angry and a lot of them talk about weird stuff that people weren't talking about in music. Like for instance, you know, cutting and bondage and that, you know, that was like that, all that stuff was my thing. And maybe I couldn't really talk about that stuff out loud, but I certainly wrote songs about it. Yeah. Like you mentioned how dark it is and it's, you know, you look at the mask you're, you're dealing with, as young people dealing with the fact that you know the hillside stranglers preying on on people that are going to shows with you and like you've got just from reading these histories you've got real scary criminals just preying on young people in that scene yeah and not only that but i mean we were all taking tons and tons of drugs and and mm. and drinking almost to the point of alcohol poisoning so you know there was that element of it too and um I mean, the drug stuff ended up being a real bummer because it, it progressed from just like having fun to people, you know, becoming heroin addicts and stuff. So, you know, yeah. that was no bueno. No, certainly. I'm um, just going back. Your original punk name was Tiffany Teardrop, right? Uh, no, Jane Drano. Jane Drano. Oh, I thought in the essay in that book, you say Tiffany Teardrop. But I, I guess Jane Drano is the other one I've heard. Definitely. Did you ever see the Imperial Dogs? No. Or the Quick? Oh yeah, the quick. So the quick, the quick. There was like sort of this uh, power pop thing going on mm -hmm. at the very beginning of the punk stuff, and so that was kind of tangled up a little bit in the punk thing. So we would go see all those bands too. Yeah, like it certainly, you know, and I think sonically, it seems like that's where the Go Go's fits in with like bands like the Nerves and the Plimsolls. Was that stuff that you guys would play with early on? But it just seems like all the early flyers you see, it's a lot more punk bands that you're playing with. Yeah, I don't think people really saw us in, yeah, in retrospect, I think you could say that we would have fit more into that, but I think our lifestyle, our social lives, the yeah. way we look was way more punk than that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's the thing about the Go-Go's, and you look at who covers the Go-Go's to this day, it's like punk bands, like it's Mark Arm's first band covers the Go-Go's in like 82, you know, it's like you're consistently a sonic influence like my band like bands to this day are drawing on you from punk rock well that's cool that's nice to hear possibly the biggest two compliments of my life as a songwriter is, is knowing that billy joe armstrong was influenced by me and kurt Cobain. not me sorry that just was weird <laughs> billy joe armstrong was influenced by go-go songs and Kurt Cobain also was. He loved the Go-Go's. So, like, I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that. I said maybe if, if David Bowie or Brian Ferry were like, oh, yeah, I love their writing, then I would just have to have a heart attack and die. Well, you know, you're, you you wind up playing with Sparks a bunch throughout the years, and, and they're a big influence, right? Yes, I was crazy for Sparks in high school. I used to follow them around. I saw them many times. I think just looking at the Go-Go's, you know, in, in the, the songwriting, it just seems like what you've given to punk is just this sort of, you know, obviously there were melodic punk bands the whole way through and people doing melody, but just sort of this like, you know, like almost like super sweet 
melody that you know you hear in green day and you definitely hear in nirvana like you just that's the kind of i don't know but where did that come from for you like what are the super melodic bands that you were into um i really think because we grew up obsessed with the beatles that, that was the start of it mm -hmm. and then in the 1960s in um la that the whole uh, AM radio thing was amazing. They were playing such good music and it, it was all so melody driven. Like, you know, no one was going to remember the lyrics were pretty dumb, but God damn it, those melodies were so good. And I think that really stuck with at least Charlotte and I and Belinda too. Belinda says the same thing. So mm. um, I think that's where that comes from. And also, there was a lot of reverence within the punk scene for the 60s bands. Um, and for us, it was all about like the Shirelles and um, the Shangri-Las and the Crystals. And I mean, there were just like so many really cool, uh, I guess they weren't really bands, more like groups with girls in them. And, you know, we wanted to pay homage to them, which is why, I mean, has been in our set probably for 40 years off and on. We play the song um, Walking in the Sand mm -hmm. by the Shangri-Las. And they, those songs, some of those, when you look back on them, they're kind of tough. I mean, they, oh, you know, they're yeah. talking about, you know, girls falling in love with the bad boy and people driving off cliffs and, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. No, 100%. And it's funny because like I've actually seen like a live bootleg of you guys from 78 and you're playing Walking in the Sand on that thing. So that uh -huh. must be like right when you start, right? I know it is real. Yes, we did. We started in May of 78 was our first show. Um, and I think it's really funny because when we do perform Walking in the Sand, we really do it exactly the way we've done it since 1978. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing that that comes forward because I can't imagine there's too many other songs that have, well, you know, say in the year since the 78 run of the band. Right. Um, we've, we've brought back, I don't know how many years ago, at least 10 years ago, we brought back Fun With Ropes, our song about bondage. Okay. Yep. We put yeah. that back in the set. And um, we've done a lot of Ramones covers over the years. I mean, the thing about the band is we really don't have a huge catalog. And once everyone... All five of us have said, ew, I hate that song. I'm not doing it. You know, you get distilled down to like a really kind of a short list. So that's why it's always not only necessary, but fun for us to do cover songs too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, you know, it's really, it's really fun to do the Shangri-Las and to do the Ramones. And the other thing that I've really been kind of pushing that we've done for at least 10 years now is like we like to choose a song that's been really big in the charts and usually a female song song and just do it go-go style like we mm. did the um the Celine Dion Titanic song and we did um call uh call me maybe and um what else did we do we did Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus and I mean the thing is like these songs are really good. And um, I think when we do them, they're even better. I'll just yeah. say that. It's <laughs> like we bring, we, we bring that more, you know, wildness and a more of a punk rock spirit to it. And, you know, especially with the Titanic song. I mean, it's a complete fucking tra transformation. Yeah, I, I definitely would 100%, uh, you know, sound unheard, prefer a Go-Go's version of that song to the original. Uh, what was the first song you ever wrote? Do you remember? 
Uh, yeah, it was called London Boys, and it was about how cool London Boys are. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, because it all started with the Beatles, and you know, you just get this obsession with English musicians, and um, so the, we did used to do that song, but it just it was just so corny. I mean, we just had to let it go. <laughs> Was it were the Go Go's the first band? You, well, obviously, uh, originally you guys are called the Misfits, right? Uh, no, we had. It was just one of the ideas that we bantered about. We didn't actually ever call ourselves that. Okay, okay, but how how uh, how long into the band did you play the first show? Uh, I don't think it was that long. I don't think it was that long at all. It was definitely less than two months. Wow. And that's why that, that first show, we only knew three songs. So it was a four-song set because we repeated one of the songs. And, you know, that, that was at an actual party at the mask that was for the Dickies, who were another um, – they were, they were a pretty poppy punk band from Hollywood, too, and they were going over to England to do a tour. The, the Dickies were one of those bands that everyone thought were going to be huge, and they, they got a real record deal with a real record company. Well, yeah, because it's all—it's only you, really, you and them that get signed immediately, kind of out of that first crop of bands. The major, right? Ones. Yeah. No, we thought so. There was the Dickies, who were like super, like uh, pop songs done a thousand miles an hour, and then there was um, X, you know, amazing songwriters. But I don't think record companies really understood them for a few years. But then mm -hmm. they got signed by Electra, so that was good. Mm -hmm. And then there was also the Weirdos and the Screamers neither of whom ever got a major record deal, but, but were probably the two most popular and definitely among the best bands of all. Um, everyone thought the Screamers were going to be the big hit, but I think they were just too, 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 too fucking weird. When the we Screamers... Oh, sorry, go on. I mean to cut you off. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Just we, we love this. I mean, I saw the Screamers dozens of times and the Weirdos too. So I would say those two and X were my three favorite LA bands. Well, and the screamers don't even get a chance to record, you know, an, an actual record. Like nothing comes out. Like they've got to be the most influential unrecorded band ever. <laughs> yeah. There's um, it's weird how there's so many bands that influence so many artists and musicians, but the general public have no idea they existed. Yeah, and that brings up a band I, I had to ask you about, which is Castration Squad, because they're another band along with the Go Go's that you hear about, kind of the first wave that was that was predominantly women. Um, uh -huh. I was I was wondering what you know was that a band that you played with a lot, or was that another band that was just kind of coexisting at the same time as you? Um, they were coexisting when we were around. They started later than us, but that wasn't. I didn't really ever see that as a serious band it was kind of more like a a gang or a lifestyle and there was a it was a they were there was a lot of drug problems in that band so i don't really think they ever did that much it it almost seems like that pre-foretells uh like kind of the next chapter of los angeles which is the, the stuff you hear about a lot which is the violence and the gangs Yes, absolutely. It just, it got so out of control. Um, and a show that's kind of almost become, you know, infamous is that uh, St. Patrick's Day show uh, in March 79 that you play. It's the St. Patty's Day Massacre, which you're, you're already headlining by that point. Yeah, well, we weren't, we weren't the headliners of that show. 
Oh, I th- I, it's always been said that it's like you and X are co-headlining, but is it just you're just oh, the really? last one? Yeah, sir, but I'm just like, oh, oh you were there. I'm no, just going really by. No, I mean, there were bands on after us. Okay. Uh, but anyways, the, we were somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that was a horrible, horrible, horrible experience. Because what you just have is kids making music, not harming anybody, n- not doing anything wrong, except being at a concert. And then the riot squad coming in with their face shields and their... Uh, SWAT gear and their guns and their billy clubs and just like beating the shit out of kids for no reason. It was so outrageous. Um, so yeah, I mean, but you know, some things never change because cops, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> no, it, it actually Keith, when Keith was on a couple, a uh, couple weeks ago, he brought up a really interesting point, which is, you look at Daryl Gates and you look at that being the sort of like origins of militarization of police and you really get to see kind of the origins of what people are dealing with protesting now. Like this is where it's coming from, this sort of like shock troop approach to policing. It starts with LA. Oh yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I would be pretty sure that it happened other places too, but definitely. Hmm. Yeah. That was a, that's a dark day in the in the city of LA's history for sure. They they should be ashamed of themselves. Do you think that had the effect of militarizing the scene there? Oh well, we we already hated society. We already yeah, hated no cops <laughs> and, and authority, and um, you know we were we were definitely outcasts. And I mean that's how everyone liked it. I liked it that way because I had always. I have been a really big rebel since I was 11. So mm-hmm. um, having a group to be rebellious with and sort of a, I would say it was sort of a murky philosophy, but it was, you know, it was basically like, fuck authority, fuck the government, fuck our parents, fuck our employers, you know, there was kind of a lot to be mad at. And I understand that it wasn't as grim as it was in England. It was way worse in England. I mean, they were in the midst of a really, really terrible, um, I don't know if you call it a depression, but definitely a recession. And mm. you couldn't get jobs and people had to squat at how, you know, buildings. And so that's what propelled the London or the English punk scene. And then when it came to us, you had this mixture of, you know, fascist police, but also the Beach Boys and the Beach and the mm-hmm. Sun. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of, it lent this kind of um, weird, interesting, unique vibe to L.A. music, I think. I, just, I meant like, almost like, you know, because I, I read actually the Stern Brothers talking about how it was, a direct result of that show, them forming BYO and kind of like the shift in their mentality kind of after the, you know, St. Patty's Day Massacre as it's kind of become infamously known as. Um, But like how that show caused their mentality to shift and how like, you know, prior to that, they had been in that band, The Extremes. And then after that, they're in Youth Brigade and you have Skinhead Manor and just sort of this, the shift to hardcore, which, uh, you know, I know you've talked about how it was predominantly a scene of women and gays and then how at a certain point, it becomes this sort of like really macho, you know, skinhead scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, definitely testosterone driven and the the 
the audiences of which I was, we were all a part of went mm -hmm. from having fun and jumping around with your friends to like bashing people's heads in and stuff. Like why were, why were they fighting each other? Like, I don't, that's, I'll never understand that. It's like, why turn that kind of energy inward when you could turn it outward? Yeah, no, and, and you know, obviously reading about you saying this back when all these books were first kind of coming out and reading about other people talking about it, like it, it's become something that, I don't know, it's almost fascinating, like to, to talk about that shift that happens where you have almost like two completely just different chapters of the same scene. Like, did you kind of, you know, you talk about, I think, in one of these books where you come back from England and it seemed like everything had changed. Well, um, I don't yeah, I don't actually remember if that was the thing that changed when we got back. But one of the things that really changed for us is that we had been, when we were in England and and we, we were touring with Madness and then the specials and their whole audience, even though they, those guys, they were totally like a mixed race bands and they, you know, they, their audience were all these uh, white nationalists, these white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was weird because of course they hated the Go-Go's. I mean, what did we have to do with ska? Nothing. And, you know, we weren't guys and we weren't English and, you know, there, we had every, every strike against us. So that those tours and those months we were there were really hard, but super fun at the same time. And we still had our share of adventures and good times, but we kept writing home like how famous we were getting and how great everything was. And then, I mean, when we got back, all of a sudden we were like 10 times bigger than we were than when we left. And so it didn't make any sense, but it was great. When you did those that first UK tour, had the stiff single come out yet, even? Um, it came out during that tour because those guys, those bands were on stiff. And mm -hmm. um, Dave Robinson was like, well, we may as well have a single out since they're going to be on these tours. Um, he didn't, he didn't want a whole album out of us. He just, cause he didn't really get us or like us, but, um, I guess the single was a pretty nominal investment and, you know, the single did nothing in England. And I actually remember reading in, um, NME, uh, uh, Elvis Costello reviewing, we got, we got the beat and just massacring it. Like fucking hated it, hated it. Um, but the single then was uh, heard in, in America as an import and all the, dan the dance clubs that were starting uh, were playing in. And so it actually did pretty well. So that was kind of a precursor before we did our album. And I, I do think that we got some notoriety from that first version of We Got the Beat that Stiff put out. Yeah, and I think, you know, Elvis Costello, uh, you know, one of many time he, times he's been proven historically wrong on a subject matter. <laughs> is, that is a classic record. I think, any you know, everyone else who heard it kind of got it. So, you know, maybe England didn't get it, but the rest of the world did. Yeah. Um, what was, yeah, because you're going to England kind of as an unproven commodity at that point. So I could only imagine how difficult a British you know, late 70s, early 80s punk crowd was to play to as an unknown band? And, you know, we had a, 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 ver a variety of reactions. We we not only opened for the ska bands, but then we also did some of our own shows. And those were pretty much pretty well received. Mm. But let's face it, I, I really don't think Americans were super popular 
in England at that time. And, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It was, it was, to me, it was like the adventure of a lifetime. I'd never been on a plane and I'd been obsessed with England since I was a kid. So it was like, wow, I love it. <laughs> what about bands like the Modettes and the Bell Stars? And, 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 you know, so there's like all this sort of DIY explosion that's happening and a lot of women getting involved in punk rock and doing stuff and kind of building out almost separate scenes at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember the Modettes and the Bell Stars. We actually, I mean, they they hung around in the same crowds as we did, and I mean, I thought it was it was great. And of of course, the amazing X-ray specs. I mean, mm-hmm. let's not forget them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 amazing. Like that's the thing I love about this music is the fact that you have you know like you're coming out of a scene in LA where you've got you know the germs the screamers, the bags, yourselves. Like, it's just, it's it's kind of like a, a really powerful place that you can do all sorts of different things and still be part of one group. Yes, absolutely. There was a ton of artistic freedom. Nobody had to be one particular way. And everyone had their influences. I mean, you know, just because punk started didn't mean that everyone didn't have a lifetime of music they listened to before they started a punk band. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's not even just the music, you know, you look at, you know, like obviously the fashion that kind of comes out of this scene, but even Gary Panter and the stuff that he would wind up doing, having, you know, designed the logo for the screamers originally, like, it just feels like it was a creative space for all different disciplines. Yeah, I know. And I think of that uh, screamers poster that Gary Panter made that is so iconic and (laughs) had to have influenced um, Shepard Fairey, for example. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you're right. Absolutely. It's funny. Like, like we're saying, like, you know, the most influential unrecorded band of all time, even graphically. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> they had their, they had their shit together. I mean, they, and they were out to take over the world and, you know, it just didn't happen. Uh, what, what are your memories of the germs? Um, well, you know, they, they were part of the gang, like, you know, Lorna and Belinda were best friends and um, Pat was always around and um I it's it's funny to me I'm gonna get a lot of shit for this but the the germs weren't as popular as they've now been made out to be I mean I don't know the thing is Darby was always like super he was always really fucked up and so they would do shows and I mean they kind of were just like another one of the bands I I honestly wouldn't say that they had the power or popularity of the other bands I've mentioned earlier. Mm. I mean, it was always like a big train wreck. So fun to see. And probably in a way that the Go-Go's were a big train, you know, we were a big train wreck, but I mean, not so much because we were fucked up, but just because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's super weird to me too, personally, because (laughs) Darby went to England and he, and he came back and he had this whole like adamant thing going and he and I, we knew each other, but we'd never really been friends. And we just sort of started talking at that point. And he, he actually talked about, yeah, we should hang out. We should get together. And it was like a day or two later that he died. So that's always like, when I think about the germs and I think about Darby, it's, it comes back to that. And it's just, it's like, Oh man. So that's kind of my my personal experience. 
Well, not to awkwardly now pivot, but like Charlotte had the band The Eyes before joining the Go-Go's. What are your memories of The Eyes? Because I love that single on Danger House. Oh my God, that song is so good. So and good. I, um, seeing videos of them performing live and seeing Charlotte do that song and just go crazy. Oh my God. I actually, I don't remember her being so crazy on stage, but the thing is everyone was crazy on stage. So mm. it probably, it probably didn't stand out, but knowing Charlotte as I do and what sort of a reserved dignified person she is, it was just super fun <laughs> to see those old videos of her. Um, and again, like guys, we're just like another one of the local bands, you know, yeah. we, all of us would play a lot, you know, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of shows. Well, a lot of weird groupings of shows. Cause like you said earlier, the every we're all over the map as far as the LA punk scene, the sounds and the look of each band, it's all over the map. Oh yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, well, I, I was looking today and I saw a flyer for, you know, the Go-Go's and Black Flag. And it's like, talk about two bands, <laughs> from, you know, the same point that diametrically sonic or sonically not on the same page, but you know, would go on to influence everything everything that comes yeah. out of it yeah that's so crazy and then you know let's not forget the san francisco bands which you know there was a lot of like cross-pollination going on because the la bands were constantly driving up to san francisco to play up there and likewise too that they were always coming down here and i think probably one of the best california bands that's ever existed and talk about you know not getting their kudos as the avengers oh, were yeah. just Oh my God, I was so, so, so in love with that band. I was such a fan. They were amazing. And then there, there was all kinds of bands up there. And also, I mean, they were also kind of a mixed bag too, because you had the Mutants, which had two girls in that band that I was friends with. And they were super funny and weird. And then there was like the Nuns and Crime. There was a, there's, it's just like... It's funny for me to talk about because you got to think that 99.999% of Americans have no idea that any of this existed or any of these people existed. But you know, it's so amazing because you know, you're right. Like no one cares outside of like the people that really passionately care about it. But like the, the thing is like, you know, you look at yourselves obviously being the biggest outgrowth, but like, you know, these bands that go on to influence, you know, the Nirvanas of the world, the green days of the world, like there, there are ripple effects that, that do change the world. Like you go, you go to, like, I've traveled to Japan and played with bands that cover germ songs. Like it's, you know, I've, I've been to China and seen bands do X covers. It's, it's really like a global thing that kind of comes out of this. That is wild. I had no idea. It's funny. It's it's something where you know, and I I've come to this realization that I'm basically obsessed with the work of teenagers as like a, an adult. But you know, the reality is this this stuff that these teenagers were doing, yourself obviously included, is just so profound that it still has resonance. You know, forty plus years later. Yeah, um, things that come from the heart tend to be that way, and there's a lot of soullessness now. I would say. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I have kept you for a long time and I could talk to you forever. At some point in the future, would you come back for a part two? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, before I let you go, can I ask you a few more questions though? Okay. Um, I guess the uh, thing I wanted to know, you know, talking about Black Flag, you know, it's it seems like they're the band that keeps getting brought up as being the ones that really usher in that change we were talking about, the shift from punk to, to quote unquote, I guess, hardcore, or at least 
you know, Bay Area hardcore, South Bay hardcore, so whatever it is, hardcore coming in. I was just wondering, like, would you see it at that shows when you at those early shows when you're playing with them, even? Mm, I don't really remember. I think the whole hardcore thing was super gradual, and um, to I I had been. Uh, told I was wrong about this, but it seemed like once Orange County heard about the punk scene and started coming, that's when the troubles started. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Orange County, huh? (laughs) Well, you're not alone. Now they have the real housewives of Orange County, and back then they had hardcore. They had skate punk in the 90s, too, so they've given us, you know, a lot of cultural, uh, huge cultural signposts. (laughs) Um, well, I guess speaking of, of the 90s, like how did Frosted come together? Um, well, I think it was kind of like the grunge scene made me remember my roots because I really we walked away from the punk scene and we didn't really look back no one ever thought at least we never thought punk was ever going to break and then they always talk about you know punk rock broke in 1990 or whatever and Mm -hmm. I mean that was like super fucking weird when that happened and but it got me to thinking and you know by the mid 90s, I think I said earlier how much I really loved the 90s music. It was really inspirational. And I was living in the middle of nowhere, like up in the mountains, just like some podunk town. And I just started writing on my own. And I don't know, once I wrote all these songs, I just thought like, well, I should do something with it. And that's actually my, with my solo career, that's kind of like how it's happened several times. Like I didn't really plan to make a record, but I was real inspired and all of a sudden I had enough songs to make records. So I did. Is that how it goes? Like, cause you know, once again, I, I love all your solo records, like, you know, stuff you've done in your own name too, obviously, but like, it just feels like, do you just wait till the kind of motivation to do one comes? Cause you're not someone who's, you know, obviously super prolific putting these things out. Right. Um, yeah. Cause I'm, it's easy for me to walk away from writing. I just have so many other things in my life that I love and, and I'm pretty busy, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, if once I get inspired, I, I just write. And if I don't feel inspired, I, I don't kick myself for it because it kind of is what it is. Um, and that's that's actually what happened with my my latest band, Electro Domestico, is um, I met a guy who uh, made an album at my house. I had a studio in my basement, this guy Pietro Straccia, this Italian fella. And um, I just loved his voice and songwriting. And so I asked him if he wanted to try writing a song. And the same thing all through two, six, two, uh, 2016, I was living here in Hawaii and he was living in Oakland and, and we just kept writing and writing and writing. And, and then we thought, well, what the fuck are we going to do with this stuff? And that's when we decided to make the record. So, so that was like another instance of that happening. <laughs> I'm not sure though at this age now I'm 62 like I don't know if I have many more albums in me and the thing is you I haven't done an album like that made money in you know since what 1984 so it's not like I'm driven like I'm doing this for a living 
Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to make money. And it's, I would say, virtually impossible for a woman in their 60s to be successful as a uh, performer or whatever. I mean, luckily, the Go-Go's people still love us. But as far as solo, eh, it's not really viable. You really just have to do it because you love it. Well, I, I really think, you know, and I was talking to some other people before doing this, that your solo stuff, you know, obviously the go-go stuff is, you know, classic and then on a different level, you know, in terms of historically, but I just think you're such a great songwriter that solo stuff's just so overlooked. Yeah, some of it, I think a lot of it's crap, but yeah, I, I do like some of it for sure. Like, especially the 80s records with a remix, I would love to hear those things with a different mix on them because I think... Oh, the songs are so good. And your vocals are so good on them and the lyrics and things. But Aww, the 80s thanks. production is 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 heavy on some of those, which I, oh, I guess yeah. the times. Yeah. Oh, my God. I cringe when I hear that stuff. Well, another record that I read about, and this is my last one, I promise, that you were on is that I had no idea about is you you did backups on more specials. The oh. specials record. Yeah. And yeah, I did. I don't know. It was no big deal. I mean, usually if someone asks me to do that, I just say yes. And of course, I love the specials. Yeah. So why? of course I would do that. I've done it on some other people's records. And to me, it's just fun. I mean, I, I am a huge fan of, of background vocals and especially harmonies and writing harmonies. And I I'm, I'm, talk about something being in your brain. I mean, when you start listening to the Beatles when you're a toddler, you are going to have a lot of harmony in your brain. <laughs> So it's, it's really fun and easy for me. And I actually really love being a background singer more than when I do lead singing. Well, I heard a rumor about an unreleased Circle Jerks cover with you and Super Chunk that uh, I, I got to hear where you're doing oh, vocals that's on that. Right. I forgot that I did that. Oh, my God. They should release that. I know that's I couldn't believe this exists. And I, when I found out about it. I'm, I'm don't worry. I'm starting that campaign. So I'm glad I have your support on this. <laughs> All right, well, listen, I, I'm going to run. It was super fun talking to you, Damien. Thank you, Jane, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, she will be back for a part two because we barely scratched the surface. I got I got sheets more of questions I can ask her about the Go-Go's and punk and, and all sorts of other stuff. And check out Frosted. Check out all her solo stuff. Check out, obviously, Club Zero, the new Go-Go single, and the, the reissue, and, and also check out that Go-Go's documentary. Definitely check that out. But, you know, check out Jane's solo stuff. It's worth tracking down and, and, and listening to because she is a killer songwriter. Uh, and, and, and also vote for the Go-Go's right now to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, granted, most of the stuff that, that we really champion around here never has a shot of making it into that place, uh, which, you know, I think is kind of unjust, but, but, you know, that's fine because the Go-Go's do. And by the Go-Go's getting in there, they're bringing with them the eyes. They're bringing with them castration squad. They're bringing with them frosted. They're bringing with them all the mask bands because they're kind of the representation of that scene. Anyway, vote for them. Like, like yeah, yeah who, who, who's better to go in there? Like fucking, what are they putting in this year? Like lover boy or some shit? I don't know. Go-Go's. Go-Go's deserve it way more. All right. That's it. Oh, and also, John Worcester, you know, and 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 all the all the all the buddies over there in Super Chunk, get on putting that Circle Jerks cover out there. Come on. Come on. Get to it. You got the blessing. Jane give you the blessing right here. We got it. We got it uh on the record now. 
All right. Next episode of the show coming out in a few days. This is one of the best conversations ever. We get we get we get going on this conversation. We're keeping the legends coming. We're keeping the innovators coming on the show to celebrate the release of their brand new box set. John King of Gang of Four will be here and we go we go all over the place. We talk about a lot of stuff, you know? Like if you if you want to hear someone from a Gang of Four talk about Champ 69, you're showing up at the right place next week. This, this is really funny. It's a real fun episode. Very charming, very cool person. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for you to hear it. That is coming out on uh, a few days from now, you know? Just uh, uh, next, it'll be after the weekend. So if you're listening to this one, they're all coming out. <laughs> if you're listening to this down the line, it's they're all here. You know, you can see it all. So, you know, what this isn't for you. But if you're listening to this when they're dropping, it'll be out after the weekend. You can check it out. And I, I recommend it. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. That is it for today on the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. And we need to help trans people protect themselves. Uh, read about what's going on in the world. You know, there's there's petitions going around to, to you know, organizations that are fighting directly frontline work right now. Like there's, there's just so much shit. It's almost overwhelming, you know? And that's why I think going into specific things, uh, during this part of the show, uh, you know, it's almost like a disservice because there's so much happening at any given time in your local community. And it's really the burden falls on, on us to stay informed and to kind of look around what's going in the world and see how and where we can help, you know, like, you know, donate money, get involved, Basically, this boils down to fuck, fuck fascism, fuck Nazis, you know, like uh, support people that are, are helping people, you know, just just uh, yeah. Assign your organ donor cards, please, if if you can, um, it it can make the world a difference to someone. It can save someone's life, and uh, you know you don't need them by the time they come for them, you know. So sign your cards, please. Uh, do something creative for yourself. Express yourself. You don't have to share it with anyone necessarily even. Just, just you know, draw, make a zine, start a band, start a start a podcast. The podcast is really the lowest, really the lowest form of creative expression out there. Uh, but you could, you could do all sorts of stuff um, and just, you know, do it for yourself. All right, that's it. Whew. Whew. Late night last night. I got a... I recorded a wild one last night. I can't wait for you to hear that. But anyway, that's for another day. Thank you for listening. Love you.